0: What's up? I'll give you money. Penny for your
3: thoughts.
0: (laughs) You know, I want you to show me the way. And when it comes right down to it, it's a plain shame. I don't know what the hell this gibberish is all about. Do you? I have no idea. I'm trying to think here. Oh,
3: light shining. I'll give you you money if you
0: figure it out. Mm, Do you feel like I do? I do, and that gives it away, doesn't it?
3: It totally gives it away. 13 minutes and 45 seconds of it.
0: Yeah, and you play it all if, you know, you really can get away with it, you know, on a radio station or in your personal space. You got to listen to the full version. Uh it is a pocket podcast here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, pocket podcast number 5. All about Frampton Comes Alive. We didn't plan for that to rhyme, but there you go. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. Hello. And, And we are at the Northern Studios here of Dark Doc Media. The Soul Kitchen Studio is fired up and ready to go on Frampton Comes Alive. Brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewing in the heart of Hapro. They've got the cure for what ails you since 2014. And we're off like a prom dress talking about Peter Frampton and his landmark Frampton Comes Alive.
3: This album's absolutely incredible. I remember hearing it as a nine-year-old when it was brand new, and I remember all of the hype on the radio about it. Rock radio was losing their freaking minds over this album. Like, oh, my God. This guy is so good, and he is. I'm not knocking him at all because he's amazing. Love Peter Frampton. But rock radio in Denver was losing their minds. KBPI, KAZY, and I think it was even getting played on top 40 almost right off the bat as well.
0: It started not, to it yeah, show me after. the way, really, really put it uh, on top 40 radio, which took him to places that he hadn't been at that point in his career. And let's talk about Frampton's career for a minute. Um, he Funny was true. a talented lad. Uh, his dad was David Bowie's art teacher. Know, that's crazy. In to their think old about. neighborhood there they in Bromley, uh, Bromley, Bromley with an M. I want to make sure I get that right. Yeah. And uh, as such, he got himself into a band called The Herd and ended up in Humble Pie. And as was happening in the 70s, he went solo and uh what was the joke it was sometimes uh, it goes you go solo and solo that nobody can hear you yes. or ever again Stuff along those lines and artist development isn't the same now and hasn't been for a long time with the record labels but a&m really uh really dug in with him and uh, gave him opportunities multiple opportunities to make albums and he was making good albums but they weren't really connecting in a big way were they
3: No, they weren't and Part of it, I think, was something that I read that somebody said. It might have been Peter Frampton. It was the fact that they were putting him in these sexy T-shirts that were unbuttoned <laughs> with the hair out. And it oh, it was, was totally, that? It was totally not his style, and it changed how his hardcore base viewed him because he had a huge base, from what I understand. Yeah, I from did not Humble know, Pie. I did not know Humble Pie very well at oh. all at that age. I was nine years old. Humble Pie just wasn't part of that play at that time. I didn't no. get into them till I was older. So I had heard about this guy from Humble Pie who made this great album as a nine-year-old. And then reading up later to hear about how this was sort of a weird point in his career and how the labels kind of groomed him in a way that he didn't feel comfortable with in a way that he didn't want to go. They changed the direction of where Peter went and it changed his
0: music. I'm not sure what was going on in the a and department in the Peter Frampton file at A&M Records in those days. And maybe we should look into that. We probably know some people who can tell us. Some of them might even listen to the podcast. Hello, some Bob. of them might even be in the Pennsylvania area that we know. <laughs> That's true too. Um, but he put out a series of albums that that didn't click commercially. They did okay. Um, I was looking at some of the numbers, but they're all dwarfed by what happens when he releases uh, Frampton Comes Alive. Look at the results here. Uh, Wind of Change hit number 177 on the Billboard chart. Frampton's Camel 110. Something's Happening hit number 125. Not exactly setting the world on fire. But these are good songs. Yes, these they are. These are really good songs. And they knew that in the A&R department at A&M. They knew that yes. he was writing good songs. So then they get the to the, the self-named Frampton record, and he breaks through and uh, goes to number 32 on the Billboard chart and goes gold in 1976. Now, in the meantime, they're doing the production for what would become Frampton Comes Alive. I always thought that maybe it's because of something I mislearned uh, when this was all happening. I was under the impression all, for a long time that this was all from the cow palace in San Francisco. And what we learn is we, uh, as we dig in and uh, now everything is uh, post post analysis, I guess you'd say there's a lot of post game analysis. Uh, Winterland in San Francisco was the site for most of it at a couple shows in San in 1975 And uh, then they went out to what was then the Long Island Arena in, is it Comac? Comac. Comac, New York. Long Island. And uh, a SUNY Plattsburgh campus show in Plattsburgh, New York. So they kind of pieced it together from all those. Anyway, But so you learn things as you go. And I mean, I heard this a long time ago, but I'm saying this. Initially, we all thought, wow, that Cow Palace show must have smoked. Oh, are you because,
3: kidding? Because it was are... all
0: these great versions. And some of them, some of them, by the way, have come out on the anniversary edition. Uh, some different songs like White Sugar that are pretty good uh, that pro- what probably could have fit in if they'd done things differently, but that's what you had even with a double album. You had what, the, what the, the format would support, and they had to make it fit, which is pretty amazing when you look at the song list on Frampton Comes Alive. Yeah, the fact that they took so
3: many songs and spliced them together was a mind-blower to me when I found that out. As a kid I was like oh my god this concert must have been the best concert ever holy cow look at it and you hear the crowd and you actually feel the crowd's energy when you listen back to it especially on vinyl and I think that's one of the powers of the recording techniques back yeah, then yeah. there's a lot more feel and like I'm getting a little goosebumpy talking about it but I remember Hearing do you feel like we do the first time and being blown away by it as a little kid going what is this oh my god this is so long this is so good
0: it's going to play forever yep. he had started to gain all this commercial success with show me the way and baby i love your way and all of a sudden he became uh, a top 40 staple yeah,
3: those
0: Meanwhile, people who had been his supporters earlier on songs like I Want to Go to the Sun from Something's Happening, or the the, Do You Feel Like We Do, and the version of that is an epic, not only in length and proportions, but just the whole way that it feels. And I can tell you, I saw him on his last night in Philadelphia at the Met, and that last time, knowing this is the last time you'll probably see Peter Frampton perform this, It it was chilling. And uh, I've seen him do it many times, starting with 1976 at JFK Stadium, which is the site of the Wells Fargo Center now in Philadelphia. Uh, He performed with Yes, and it was just one of those incredible things because I had never seen him before. I'd heard him play on records with, uh, you know, with Humble Pie pretty much and wherever else you could hear him. But here he is turning the whole thing on its head and uh, the incendiary, Do You Feel Like We Do, and everything else. Who it's was complete... the opener that night with Yes and Peter Frampton? There was a group called the Set Dart Band. Okay. And in between them and Frampton was Gary Wright. Whoa. Yeah, and the thing about Gary Wright was uh, that he came out, it was just him. It was the first time I'd ever seen someone. I've seen some impressive banks of keyboards. Uh, displayed on stages before but I saw Gary Wright by himself using just a little bit of a rhythm box I guess and just do the whole set that, that was the you know Dreamweaver, yeah. Love is Alive that era oh, of Gary Wright and then Frampton wow. and then Yes later in the evening yeah. this, this album comes out in what January 76
3: January 6th I think
0: 1976 yeah. so it was everybody's really... getting off on it and then Frampton comes out and just blows things up in the afternoon it was pretty damn cool to see and I think for me, it, it really does do a lot to personalize it uh, uh, as far as the experience of being uh, part of comes alive, being there with a hundred thousand people that day was pretty damn cool. What do you say, I'm just glad I was around to see it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. You're lucky you got to see it. Had you seen yes at that point as well? I had seen them once before, well, once yeah.
3: before uh, in the summer of 75. Wow. You're so lucky you've lived at that time period. Uh yes, but it comes with a price, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> but the price of those tickets was only like 6 bucks. Yeah, what was, was the price? Yeah, something like that. It's crazy. <laughs>
0: You know, who probably remembers everything about ticket prices like that would be Larry Maggot. We have to have him on I the know. podcast I know. Talk sometime. about the
3: change of the concert industry and live music.
0: It is Pocket Podcast number five on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We're talking about Frampton Comes Alive, And as always, the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is sponsored by our friends at Crooked Eye Brewing, located at 13 East Montgomery Avenue in Hatboro. Great brews,
3: great people, and fun times. Next time you want a True Craft Brewery experience... Stop by for a pint and make it Crooked Eye.
0: And look, there's more to the fun at Crooked Eye than just the brews, although they are stellar. You check out their website, CrookedEyeBrewery.com. You see the full list of music events and fun scheduled for each month. So check them out at CrookedEyeBrewery.com or on Facebook.
3: So you can stop in, meet Paul and Paul, the brothers-in-law who started Crooked Eye Brewing in their kitchen. I mean, meet the Crooked Eye crew who make it fun every night. And,
0: you know, you're going to make some new friends, too. And you get to meet Jeff Mulheron. He's there a lot. He's the master brewer, and uh, he is working on some really cool stuff. Their tasty brews include the trademark Crooked IPA, which is back and tasting better than ever, right there at their expanded brewing facility in Hapro. That's where they make it all.
3: You will feel like family the moment you walk through the door. Serving nightly in the heart of Hatboro, Crooked Eye has the cure for what ails you since 2014. Welcome back.
0: Pocket Podcast number five.
3: Frampton Comes Alive. Do you
0: feel like we do, punk? Oh well, do you? I feel good, (laughs) and
3: I feel like you do for sure.
0: Well, you know, a big reason why we had these smiles on our faces. First off, we're remembering Frampton Comes Alive songs and talking about them. And uh, we should probably talk about the way the original album flowed. Um, Something's happening, kicking it off with the introduction. It might even be Bill Graham's voice on there. I think it is Bill Graham's voice. I think I remember it being Bill, an interesting character. We can do a podcast on him. Absolutely. Well, after something's happening, we get to doobie-wah. I'd like any song with Doobie in the title. And um, that was uh, part of his Something's Happening record. And uh, then came like the big breakout, Show Me the Way, which got him on every Top 40 album. And that was from the Frampton album, which helped. to. Uh, mm-hmm. There was already some love for that before it broke out as a hit. And then back to his When to Change record with It's a Plain Shame. And that's side one of Frampton Comes Alive.
3: And then side two opens up with All I Want to Be Is By Your Side, which I hadn't listened to that song in a while and i caught it this week because i was yeah, listening to frantic we comes alive and i'm sure. like i gotta really dig into the album again and And I was like, man, these songs are so good, every one of them. And you look back at it, and it's how come these songs weren't played on the radio back then? Because you. Well, they were, but it was more. Remember,
0: remember, FM. Rock was still underground radio in nineteen seventy two three four. That's true. And so things were still emergent, and there was support there, but it didn't always translate into commercial sales. It did often, and it did a lot. But that's part of the mystery of this his career that we should look into in a bigger episode of Peter Frampton. There are other mysteries which we won't um, get into no today. Kidding. And but, you know, you start side two there with all I want to be is by your side. And, uh, it's you know, it's, a, again, in that yeah. poppier, lilting uh, kind of sound, yeah. uh, wind of change. What a beautiful song. And uh, Baby, I Love Your Way, which was the second single. It was so weird in the 70s to have a single uh, from a live album. I know. The only one I could really think of off the top of my head was Rock and Roll All Night from Kiss Alive. But there you are, two hit singles off a live album. And I don't know if that's what AM was thinking was going to happen on the uh, on the pre-release meetings.
3: I don't think they were expecting that at all. I think they were expecting it to blow up as future albums and really set the pace. Or I got set people the pa- got to ask. For, yeah, we do. <laughs> and, we gotta ask people about that. Because- and then,
0: uh, oh, oh, the, look at how side two wraps up with. I want to go to the sun. This bombastic and the solo in that, oh, and yeah. they, the way they captured it. You mentioned earlier the way that the songs were uh, put together and they were made seamless mm-hmm. and to, to, to feel like it was a single concert. So and- you you put on side three because you're at the concert and you get Penny for Your Thoughts. Right. You know, another song from the the most recent record. It's like Digging in, like artists would do, into a couple songs from the new album. I'll Give You Money, which is... Great song. Yes, thank great you. Great song.
3: <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was I totally forgot about that song. It came on, and I was just like, holy shit, this song is good.
0: And then Shine On, followed by, which is a great song from Humble Pie. A um, little bit of Humble Pie in yeah, there. Just a to. nod. Just a nod. He didn't go deep into it. And then... Uh, a nod to the Stones and a nice extended version of Jumpin' Jack Flash, which he put on the uh, original version of, on his to Change record. And that's a really nice version of
3: that song, and it sounds good live. Of course, you don't have Keith's feel, but you can't discount Peter's playing. The dude's an insane guitar player, plus the musicians he had around him at that time were incredible.
0: Yeah, let's which we'll talk get into. about that. You want yeah. to talk about them now? All well, right. well, we want to finish up side four, which starts with "Lines on My Face," which is another one of those. It's it's not a rocker, but it's just he has so many. The songs he wrote at that stage, he had a, like a, almost like a coin, two sides to it, and that just goes on. But you know, it's like seven minutes in length, and it goes by like a three minute song. It's really amazing. There. And then the epic, you know. Uh, do you feel like huge. we do from Frampton's Camel? I don't think anyone realized what it would become—the behemoth it would become. Not dissimilar to uh, songs like Freebird that like that when they're played out on stage, take on a life of their own. And there's so many songs like that: "Stairway," and "November and Rain, Rain," are in
3: that category. Oh, absolutely. That is a magic But he didn't do
0: it by himself, Marcus.
3: No, he didn't. He had a great
0: band around him. Mr. Bob Mayo. Dude. Famously uh, calling out Bob Mayo on the keyboards. Um, He also played a little uh, guitar and, of course, helped with the vocals. Great late Bob Mayo. uh, Stanley Sheldon on bass and vocals and John Siomas on the drums. That's it. Um, No additional musicians as far as we know.
3: Yeah, they don't hit. Yeah, they didn't have.
0: We don't know if the guitar techs were
3: backstage behind them, adding ad, adding, adding a, a little a riff. layer or something <laughs> like that, or a riff here and there.
0: Because or, oh, that'd or get like, popular I mean, in the '80s.
3: Not only and not only that. I mean, Led Zeppelin when um, John Paul Jones would play keyboards, the his his manager would play bass backstage behind the curtain and just, like, hit the bass.
0: Pulling back the curtain yep, on rock and so, roll history one story at a time. So, we are the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Yeah, but we know that these four guys made a huge album. It yeah. sounds huge. You yeah. feel
3: it all the way through, so... Not only they get the credit, but the production crew gets the
0: credit as well because of what they did with those shows. Absolutely. The other part of it that we haven't really talked about is the commercial success. Uh, Number one in the U.S. in 1976. Number one, peak position. Number one in Canada. And number six in the U.K. And then you get into the singles, which really hadn't been a a real uh, issue Uh, prior in in his solo career. Uh, Baby, I Love Your Way on the pop singles, number 12. Uh, UK, it hit number 43. Do you feel like we do actually hit... Number ten, number ten on the U.S. pop singles chart, and number thirty-nine in the U.K. Is there a radio edit version of
3: uh, "Do You Feel Like We Do"? I don't know because I've only played the fourteen-minute version. version. Yes, only
0: there is. There's a seven and a half-minute version, Ew. and then and I think they might have made a pop single version. I don't know how you for do top that. forty radio for the for top forty radio in the day, and then. Show me the way was the follow up to that, I think, or maybe huge. it was the other way around, which went to number six on the US pop singles chart and number 10 in the UK. So big stuff. Uh, gold in Canada, gold in the UK, and eight times platinum in the US. That's eight times platinum in, in a double is uh, four million. Yeah. And it's an initial release. So that's huge. That's and huge. we'll uh, probably talk in a larger Peter Frampton episode more about where the money went yeah. <laughs> and things like that. I got a chance to do a little work with Peter later. It was, uh, by association, really. I, I was working with Leonard Skinner's label and, uh, Peter was opening for them and we went from Raleigh down to Charlotte to see him. I just stood there by the side of the stage with the, with some of the guys from the Skinner crew and watched him play and just kill it with the crowd as he always did. And when he came off, I had a chance to just talk to him. so, <laughs> From a kid who, uh, 20 years earlier, is just you know in out there in the crowd at JFK Stadium to meeting him after he comes off the side of the stage and talking to him, and then convincing him in my own crazy way to work with our little record label. It's part of the story with me and Peter Frampton. It ties together a little bit because I think Do You Feel Like We Do was the last song that
3: night, too. Wow, I'm not surprised. I only got to see Peter Frampton perform once, and that was when he played guitar on the Glass Spider Tour with David Bowie. Oh, that which was, great. was It was an amazing tour. We had Duran Duran opening up for him. and But it, I think it was he and Carlos Alomar on yeah. guitars, and yeah. the guitar work was just magnificent. I mean, the stage show for the Glass Spider Tour was absolutely magical, but the guitar work was over-the-top good, and that was one
0: of the many things that stood out. He's done so many things in his career. I think we need to uh, put it on our list of things to do and do a full episode about Peter and his full career in life. He's an amazing guy, and uh, he's, he's somebody really I hold nice dear as a, as a, as far as having that interaction and working with him. It's, uh, I, I consider him a dear musician friend, you know. Not like you and me, buddy, yeah, no, but you know what I'm saying. I totally know what you're saying, but it makes
3: sense because I've heard from many people who have had the pleasure of crossing paths with him in their mm-hmm. careers in radio that he's just a great guy, really nice, really cool, really down to earth. I'm done sure a lot he of knows his ride too. and roll like nobody's business, too. I bet he would be fun to talk about the past with.
0: I'm going to reach out. All right. You never know what will happen, and you never know who will show up here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We are sponsored by our good friends at Crook and Eye Brewery. Uh, they are right in the heart of Hapro, Pennsylvania, a great place to hang out, and they make amazing brews. So check them out online at crookedeyebrewery.com. Uh, We are a production of Dark Doc Media on the Pantheon Network. That's right, Pantheon, where you can find all the cool rock and roll podcasts. We're in there, yeah, we're in the mix. Yeah, we're in that mix. Good mix of podcasts, some interesting uh,
3: looks at music in general if you want to check out some of the other podcasts as well. But not until you listen to ours and stay updated and keep updated on ours.
0: That's right. Hey, listen, if you've got some feedback for us, maybe personal experiences you want to share with everybody on uh, our episode, Here about Frampton Comes Alive. All you got to do is send us an email to imbalancehistory at gmail.com. That's one way to reach out. There's also a comment section on our website at uh, imbalancehistory.com. You can also
3: hit us on Facebook, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, or on Twitter, Imbalanced Histo. Don't say it! I have to say it. Give us the RY Twitter, (laughs) damn you. Damn you, Twitter! We want the RY. We're imbalanced. Bisto at Twitter. <laughs> you just blew up my earphone my headphones. <laughs> I <help> it, uh, <laughs>
0: he feels strongly about this at Twitter. I, I actually have begun a campaign on our Twitter account to. to get the RY. We'll see if we, we have can to get people to push with us. We need the RY. Guess what I found out though? What? It's cause it, the RY would put us at seventeen characters. They only let you use fifteen. But we have a hundred what is it, two hundred and eighty eight to tweet?
3: so they can't give us two extra in our name. I'm with that you. That makes You're no sense. You're preaching to the choir here in a Twitterverse. No and All before right. we wrap it up, one more thing. Do yourself a favor. Listen to Frampton Comes Alive yes. on vinyl with headphones. Yes. In the dark.
0: Oh. Even if it's not with headphones, listen <laughs> to it. And make the neighbors listen to it as well. Great, great album. Well, that's going to do it for Pocket Podcast number five here. Signing off from the Northern Soul Kitchen Studios of Dark Doc Media, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll.
1: With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band.